I'm going to add Katie to come up and bring those strict reads and read your Bibles in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing or conceit, but in humility have others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count the following of God as being congrats, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by receiving obedience to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Go to Lord's Prayer. Father God, I know we ask you uh, that you bless this time um, as we open the word, that as we that see things that you would have to teach us, uh, we ask that you would encourage us, that you would convict us, that you would show us um, yourself. That we understand uh, what you call us to better, that you work all these things in our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit as we come to the steps, as you uh, shine a light on it, that you use it to shape us and mold us and connection pieces. Father, we thank you for the way that you uh, have worked this day uh, in churches all around Blunt County. Uh, we always pray for revival. We pray that uh, by a uncommon working of the Holy Spirit, um, you would do something uh, particular uh, in our own time, in our own community. God, that you would call people to yourself, that they would recognize their sin, that they would recognize the empty um, promises and values of the world, that they would turn to you your word and to your son Jesus Christ be saved. And we know that uh, we can be means of that, that as we preach and teach faithfully, God, as we share our lives with those around us, that you use that as a means uh, by which you accomplish your purposes. And yet we never forget that it is the spirit who will work and we pray that he would uh, go before us and, and do that work. Okay, you be with us as we open your word. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things to Jesus. Amen. 
So we continue on in uh, the book of Philippians, and uh, what we find is, is Paul continuing to deal with the issue of unity. Um, specifically, what we'll notice is that as we read this passage, there's a section of it, particularly the passage that describes the character of Jesus Christ. That is a common passage, it's a popular passage, it's something that we return to over and over again as we study the Bible and to see the character of Christ. But the reason that part is shared is reflecting back on unity again. The reason, it's, it's what it's pointing to is, is unity. Um, obviously it's pointing towards Jesus Christ, but it's pointing to Jesus Christ because of the issue of unity. So we're going to see how that all plays out in, in just a few seconds. So let me start by saying this. One of the realities of life uh, that is probably apparent to everybody who's been a Christian for any amount of time is that that it is much that the calling of faithfulness on our lives is much easier said than done. All right, so we we experience um, the calling of God in our lives. We see the things He has commanded us to, um, and yet we recognize that in our own lives, that there's there's a force pushing back against that. That it is hard to live out what we are called to. Uh, the men on, at our, our men's meeting on, on Monday night—that was the topic of, of that evening. Basically, it went a lot of different ways, as it always does. But specifically, it was how do we actually live out and encourage others to live out the things that God has obviously told us to do, that He has commanded us to. Like, how do we um, how do we catch that desire um, to to live that way? I don't know uh, what your conversion experience was like. So I made a profession of faith when I was 14 years old, and I remember immediately being on fire for the Lord, right? I, I made a profession of faith, and right after that, then I was I was fighting sin, I was in word, I was sharing my faith with, with people at uh, school and, and wherever else. And if I had been given a notebook by somebody in the church um, that I had made my profession of faith at, and it was called something like Survival Guide for New Believers or something. Um, I may have shared this anecdote with you before, but but I was reading through it. It was, you know, explaining the gospel and assuring you of these things and whatever. And you got to watch chapter three or four in it. And it had a chapter that basically said, hey, I know everything feels new and exciting right now. and You're really on fire for Jesus. But let me tell you, it's, you're probably going to hit a brick wall here in students. You're probably going to hit a point where you realize that as much as you thought you had all solved all your problems and you had conquered all your demons, right, you're going to realize that the old man is still very present. Um, and your old sins are still very much real. Um, and the, the life of faithfulness and fighting against that sin is going to be a long process uh, that you're going to, at some level, uh, experience the rest of your life. And uh, and I was kind of like remember reading that chapter, so saying whatever you know. I think I got this thing. Uh, seems to be going pretty smooth right now. Of course they were right. Um, at a certain point, within the next few weeks or months, like all of a sudden you you recognize, oh, this is this is going to be a whole lot more difficult than I thought it was. At one level, that's the beautiful hope of the gospel, uh, the beautiful hope and reality that your rightness with God is not based on your performance. It is not based on how well you live up to what he has called you to, right? We we obviously continue all of our lives to fight against sin, to lean into to the things that God has called us to. But at the end of the day, just as we said a few minutes ago, as we say every week, 
And what you're counting on is who Jesus is and what he has done for us. So that's the, that's the beautiful uh, reality of the gospel. Uh, but there's certainly a tension there in our lives, right? Where we know what we should do, we know how we should live, and yet we find something else within us pulling us away from that. So we come to this passage, and that's exactly sort of the issue. Is that Paul, as we talked about last week, has encouraged the believers in Philippi to unity, to striving together, to standing strong in the face of adversity, to being courageous, and all these different things. But now it's just like the question of, yeah, but how do we do that? Like, how do we actually live that out? So, verse 2, he said, or chapter 2, verse 1, he says this. He says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and one mind with each other. <laughs> All right? So the, you, you kind of, the way he's talking about it is supposed to be saying, if the, if the triune God is working in your life in any way, right? If any of this is real to you, if any of this is, is clicking with you, if, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort of love, any participation in the Spirit, then what Paul is asking the church of God by you say, hey, Complete my joy. Make me happy in in uh, in an ultimate kind of way in the Lord. How? By being in the same mind. Having the same love. Be in full accord with one another. One in one mind. Yeah, that's sort of summation of what we talked about for like the last two weeks. Paul has called us to a life of citizenship in the kingdom. To community in the kingdom of God, right? To, and the things we said last week, to stand fast like warriors, to strive together like athletes, to sacrifice and suffer with each other like saints. But again, how do we do that? Like, how do we stand together? How do we strive together? How do we have one mind together? Well, he tells us. He gives us a few things. First off, he gives us some, some insight. He said, one, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So here's an interesting thing. You may have come across this in, in, in your life or your readings or whatever. Various theologians over the centuries have recognized this fact, and it is this. You want your own good. Okay? You want what is good for you. Everybody. At all times, pretty much. In fact, nobody really goes against that. And when they do, they're, it's, they, they may be right in some way, right? But they're still wanting the thing that they want, usually. And you can't really help it. It seems actually to be the way that God has designed us. We care about our own interests. We seek after what is good for ourselves. And here's the thing. That isn't sin. It's not wrong. To, to want what is good for ourselves. If we have the idea that we are supposed to be oblivious to our own good or neutral when it comes to our own good, that is probably an idea that is coming to Christianity from outside of Christianity. It's Greek philosophy or it's even Eastern mysticism or something like that, and we are supposed to somehow be disconnected from our own good. 
Um, you remember the pictures of during the Vietnam War of the, of the Buddhist monk who sits there and pours gasoline on his head, lights himself on fire, and sits there stoically just until he's dead. Um, why? Because he's so disconnected from his own comfort. He's so disconnected from those things that it doesn't even matter. He can just take his life in that way. That is not what God has called us. We are not supposed to be disconnected in that way. The problem is not to be concerned about our own good, but Paul kind of says, he identifies it with this idea of selfish ambition and conceit. A mindset that places ourselves over other people. That's the problem. It treats other people as an ends to our means, right? Or a means to our ends, sorry. That says, I can do whatever I want with other people as long as I can use them to make me happy and to achieve my desires. An attitude that doesn't care how other people are treated as long as I'm seeking my own good. That's the problem. You've probably heard the phrase before, humility isn't thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. So that plays into what we're talking about here, but honestly, I think it doesn't quite go far enough. Humility is demonstrated, we would say, not when we stop caring about our own good, that is thinking of ourselves less, but humility is demonstrated by thinking of others more than we think of ourselves, so thinking of ourselves less. But even then, that's only the beginning of it, because that sort of selflessness that we're talking about, this idea of selflessness, is not the same thing as biblical love. Being not selfish is not the same thing as being actively loving. Does that make sense? Love doesn't stop caring about itself. It just cares about others more. If we think humility means thinking less of ourselves, what ends up happening is we end up opening the door to all kinds of oppression and abuse that happens. If, if we think of ourselves as being nothing and nobody and unimportant or um, unworthy of dignity or anything else, then people can treat us however they want to. And that isn't just. That's not what God wants. I feel certain I've probably told you this story before. And so let me let me kind of go through it. If you've heard it, then you can take that for a minute. Uh, so when I was in middle school, um, I was a nerd, uh, silly. And, but I was in middle school, and we got bullied. Me and my friends got bullied by this guy. What would happen is we'd come to gym class, and the way our school worked is if you wanted to play the sport that you were playing at that time, you could, and if you did, you sat on the beach bleachers and just waited until gym was over. So me and my nerd friends uh, sat on the bleachers until gym was over, and there was this guy who would come over, and he would pick on us. And he'd come over, coming over, and he would make sort of threats to us, he would make fun of us, he'd push us around. And we were all nerds, and we weren't fighters, right? And so we would just kind of put up with it. And one day I had enough, right? And so I was a fighter, right? This guy was a bit bigger than me. I figured, I know what's going to happen if I try to fight back this guy, I'm probably going to get pummeled. Um, but I knew that fists weren't the only things that had power, is that words had power too. And so this guy came up and he started his usual routine of saying, you know, messing around with people. And, and I just went off on him. And I basically said, hey, here's the deal, dude. Nobody here likes you. And nobody here wants you here. And we would all be happy if you just went somewhere else. 
You come over here and you act like a jerk to us every single day. We don't like you. We don't want you. You should leave. And I watched him. And the guy found it at first was taken aback. And then began to make some kind of joke. And then turned around. And he walked off. And we pretty much never saw him. Uh, came back a couple of times, made small talk for a second, and then and then went about his business. And to be honest, I was a hero. All the kids that were picked on with me were like, man, you're the best. Uh, I'm glad somebody finally stood up to that guy. To be honest, in, in a middle school kind of way, it's a fine moment in my life. Right? The way standing up to bullies obvious, oftentimes is for people, right? Um, but here's something else, right? In high school, I never could feel exactly the crap of what I had done, right? There was something else going on. Because I watched that guy, right? And you could tell that probably the reason why he walked away and never came back was probably because I hit pretty close to him. I probably said something that he actually already believed. And now it's confirmed. And so he walked away and it never came back. It wasn't wrong for me and my friends to want not to be bullied, right? And I would say it probably wasn't even wrong for me to stand up to at some level. But look at verse 4. So verse 4, he says, I don't think I was acting out of selfish ambition or vain conceit in that moment. But verse 4 adds something to it. It says, let each of you not only look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I think Christ's likeness that day would have found some way to help that guy uh, deal with the things that was going on. Now again, you know, here's the truth. For a bunch of middle school boys, that was probably how there wasn't any way to make that happen. I couldn't, as an 11 or 12-year-old kid, uh, figure it out. I couldn't have had the wherewithal. I didn't have the inside. I didn't know what was going on. Uh, that, that may have been beyond my scope but here's the reality. Love looks like seeking after everyone's good. It looks like looking out not only for your own good, but especially for the good of others. That's what love looks like. How do we bless everyone? Is there a way in which everybody could be benefited? Everybody could win in this system. Factions in churches look a whole lot like politics does many times. They become adversarial. It's about who wins, who gets their way. But the reality is, the best case scenario is what we do is everybody is able to benefit from, from the way it works. Marriage is a great example. If we are always fighting for our own way, then something happens. So we can we imagine different scenarios. If you have a husband who demands his way, the wife who demands her way, in the end, what do you get? You get a total, right? A constant, day in, day out, little rest, no joy. Because each party is trying to find advantage, get power, get leverage in the relationship. Now, there's another scenario. You could have a situation where one of the partners is self-centered. And the other partner gives in and concedes to that all the time. Right? That can happen as well. And we know what happens to those things. 
The loving partner is in many ways living a righteous and noble way, a Christ life. We commend that. Christ commends that. But we are also realistic about the fact that that is a trying endeavor. It isn't right, is it fair for the spouse who is acting righteously? It will wear on them as they are continually taking advantage of and their needs are that's not what God wants us to an ideal either. <laughs> the ideal would be what we know is to be best. The ideal is for the husband and wife to live in mutual sacrifice of service for each other. The husband placing the needs of his wife first. The wife placing the needs of her husband first. So that they can live in peace. All people are being dignified. All people are being respected. All needs are being met. It's true in marriage. It's true in the church. Church works that way too. But again, so we say, cool, well, after we want to come to this place where we're one mind, we're on the same page, we're in agreement, we're serving and helping each other. Man, how? Like, how do we get there? Because that's not the way my heart is. It's just not the, the way I go to. We all know that when we are accused or attacked in some way, what's your first response? Unless you were just walking in the spirit that day. If, when you were attacked, your first response is to is to defend yourself, to set up a defense. And for most of us, our first reaction is to swing back and right to accuse them in some way. Well, it's not my problem, you're the one that has the problem. So how do we not do that? How do we live in this unity that Paul is saying, man, if there's any work of the Spirit going on in your life, be unified. Well, we find out in verse 5. So he says, church, Bill Pine, I'll truth. Have this mind which is yours in Christ Jesus. Say, have this mindset. What mindset? The mindset of Jesus in his incarnation. The mindset of the eternal Son of God taking on flesh and coming to earth. We are commanded to have this mindset, this attitude. It's something that we have to do. Notice, and I love these places. You see these? We talk about them all the time. There's an indicative, and there's an imperative. There's a statement of how things are. There's a statement of what you need to do. There's this idea that we refer to of becoming what you already are. Jesus said, have this mindset, or Paul says, have this mindset. Do that. But it's a mindset that's already yours in Christ Jesus. You already have it. Now do it. So what is that? What mindset, what attitude, what worldview is that? Something that we have, something that Christ has given us, it's not impossible, even if it is difficult, we can accomplish it if we would. How do we achieve that? Well, Paul said we find it by looking to Christ and to the example that he's lived. Look to Jesus and as you behold Jesus, you will become like him. As you look to Christ, you will imitate Christ. So he said, to have this mindset that Christ has, who, in verse 6, though he was in the form of God, did not count him following with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, 
even death on the cross. So as we look at Jesus, I hope this is no surprise to you that Jesus is God. You know that? Good. Uh, let me ask you a question. What are your justifications? What are the things that you tell yourself as to why you should get your way? In your marriage, in your work, in your church? Do you say, well, I've been here longer than the past. I put in more hours. I give more tithes. I'm more committed. I'm more present. I'm more thoughtful. I'm more spiritual. I'm more knowledgeable. That's why I should give away. That's why I'm the person who should listen to. That's why I'm the person who should set the agenda. Those things are nothing. Jesus has got you beat. Jesus says, I'm God. I have every reason to expect. In fact, it is intrinsic to my nature that every single thing in the universe should bow to my wishes and obey my commands. I deserve everything as God. But what's this? Jesus is that doesn't grasp at that. He doesn't hold on to it. He doesn't tighten his fists around his own self-interest and his own desire. He empties himself, you can say. God incarnate does not hold on to what is what he categorically deserves. But instead he humbles himself. He puts other people before his own desires, his own good, what he's own, his own, what he deserves. And that's the wonder and the mystery of the incarnation, at least part of it. That the infinite takes on violence for a minute. Jesus humbles himself. He steps down. That's crazy. Right? That Jesus would condescend and step down. First, God becomes man. Spirit takes on flesh. And not just flesh, but the flesh and the role of a servant. And not just any servant, but the Bible tells us a suffering servant. And not just a suffering servant, but one who is unjustly persecuted. And not just one who is persecuted, but one who dies. And not just one who dies, but one who is executed. And not just one who is executed, but who is executed by crucifixion. He keeps on humbling himself, right? He keeps on taking roles that are more humble and less exalted. The God of the universe to whom belongs all things, glory, Praise, dominion, honor. He steps down. He condescends. He humbles himself. He places other people's needs before his own. And then here we are telling Jesus about what we deserve and about what we're entitled to and how we should be treated and how I'm not going to put up with that. You say, Ash, I don't know how to stand fast. I don't know how to strive together. I don't know how to fear no evil. I don't know how to put others before myself. The answer is, follow Jesus to the cross. Follow Jesus to the cross, and you will never need another lesson. All that will be left is for you to make a decision about whether you're going to take up your own cross, follow him, or you're going to turn away. 
to actually, I don't want to be on the bottom of the pile, Fred. I want goodness. I want blessing. I want God to be working in my life. I want to experience the joy and pleasure and the rest and security that comes along with these things. Well, God's upside down kingdom, the path of those things is through sacrifice. Because what happens to Jesus in verse 9? That therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Therefore, God is bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. So that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and have that on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because Jesus humbles himself, he is exalted. Because Jesus steps down, he is raised up. Jesus has lived the obedience and righteousness that we have always, that we were intended to live. Jesus has done it perfectly in our place. And now he calls us to dictate Christ to these To put our own desires to the side. To think of others as more important than ourselves. And those include all kinds of hard decisions. Part of the problem is, is that we have so many different others to be concerned about. In the life of a church, who are the others that we are concerned about? And we're concerned about loss. We're concerned about the need. We're concerned about the new. We're concerned about the old. We're concerned about the people who are asleep. We're concerned about the people who are maybe a little too awake. Uh, we're concerned about all kinds of things. There's lots of different people to be concerned about. It's hard to balance all of those things. That's what makes some of this stuff uh, difficult. How do we see everybody's good in each of these situations? That's something that the Spirit has to lead us. But it begins by imitating Christ. If we want unity, we have to live the way Christ lived. Put others before ourselves. Not to the detriment of ourselves, exactly, right? Because again, it is true of Jesus. You probably realized this before. Jesus got what he wanted in crucifixion as well. The Bible talks about the idea of the, of the, the joy that was set before him, right? That's a crazy idea. What was the joy set before him? The joy set before him was the redemption of his people and the bride that he was going to give. Okay? Even Jesus is seeking after his own good. But the deal is, he recognizes the cost of that will mean putting his immediate good at, at jeopardy to protect the immediate good of his people. Again, complexity in all these things. They're not just simple issues where we where we easily just say, do this or do that. And yet it does give us a general mindset, an attitude, that we have a heart that is aimed to say, I am going to not seek after what is only good for me. I'm not going to act out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but I'm going to put others before myself. I'm going to act in such a way for their good to be accentuated. That's what love is. That's the end of the story. This is one of those one prizes of breakfast. Stop and go. 
I can give you some kind of example, like it's a story at the end, but that's that's the end. Is this is who we're called to be, and it is a scary prospect because again, our example is the cross. I don't know any way to get around. I don't know a way to go, yeah, 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 but not really for us. Like it's cross for Jesus, but we got all kinds of other things to do. We don't have the really, it doesn't have to be the part. And the cross is, is what happens. Sometimes there are only hard answers. But that's what we are called to do, to imitate Christ and his attitude in his incarnation as he goes to the cross. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. And let's ask that God would work through these things in our spirits. Because there's no easy application. Every single one of us is in different situations. Every single one of us is working through different things. In our hearts, minds, families, lives, church. But let's imitate Christ. And put others first. Let's go work with it. Father God, it's a hard thing to, to keep these truths in the forefront of who we are. God, it is easy to revert into our tribes, our cliques, into our factions, and those that support us, God, to take sides, to live in such a way that that we build arguments for ourselves. Yet, you call us to Christ's lives, to lay our lives down for the good of others, sacrifice, to make difficult decisions that even bring hurt to ourselves so that those people could have good in their lives. We are not good at that. It's not the way we, it's not the natural way that we gravitate. Yeah, I confess even as a believer taking to live according to your word Following the spirit, but still, uh, the old man is, is, is fighting hard to be heard in so many places. So we ask for you for grace. We ask for you to help us in these circumstances. We ask you to help us to, to build bridges and serve and sacrifice for the man that we would seek the grace good. For those around us, 